Bob Paul had been on an emotional roller coaster over the last few months. In November, he had been declared the loser of a highly anticipated, closely watched election, only to turn around and protest the outcome based on some very sketchy polling practices. And fellow Republicans had flocked to his side, decrying the election results. At the end of December, one of the perpetrators of the fraud came forward and testified that Paul should have won. But then his opponent filed a legal appeal, which pushed back his hopes for a final victory even more. And it would still be another few weeks before he was officially awarded the position that he had successfully earned five months earlier. With nothing else to do while waiting for the courts to side with him, Paul turned back toward making ends meet. And for him, at least for the past few years, that meant riding shotgun for Wells Fargo stagecoaches. And that's where he was on the night of March 15, 1881, riding the route from Tombstone to Benson. It was a cold night, and the trip was uncomfortable for a whole host of reasons. As evening transitioned into night, a violent incident was about to happen that would help elevate Paul to hero status in local esteem. But more than that, though Paul had no way to know this, the events of that evening would set the Earp brothers, Doc Holliday, and the Cowboys on their destined path to meet violently outside a tombstone side alley more than six months later. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 87, The OK Corral, Part 5, The Night Before. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we took a look at the mounting tension in Tombstone, as various players, the Herbs, Johnny B, and the Cowboys and others, circled around each other, waiting for the right time to get ahead at the expense of everyone else. Or, to bring back the metaphor from last episode, the spark hurriedly rushed down the trail of gunpowder toward the cardboard box full of gasoline-soaked rags. And today, we're going to cover the moments right before that spark hit the box, when everyone could tell that something was going to happen, but could not even hazard a guess about how bad an eruption it might be. Like I said, the incident that would eventually topple everything happened the night of March 15, 1881, while Bob Paul was riding shotgun for Wells Fargo. Paul was probably having something of a rough night. First off, even in March, southern Arizona, being at a decent elevation, can get pretty darn cold. Secondly, stagecoach wagons were not for the faint of heart. Routes were rough and primitive by today's standards, meaning that it was a much more uncomfortable ride than most anyone living in this century has probably ever experienced. Third, Paul was pulling double duty, having relieved the driver, Bud Philpot, when the latter started feeling ill after leaving a stop at a place known as Contention City. That must have added just another layer of stress to Paul's night, because on this particular route, the coach was carrying more than just passengers. In its dull green, 20-inch by 12-inch by 10-inch lockbox, the stage was carrying $26,000 in coins and cash, or what I think would be about $755,000 today. 
And since Wells Fargo insured everything it carried, guarding that much cash was a top priority for the company, something they no doubt impressed upon their shotgun writers. And just to prove why the company had been wise to hire shotgun writers, in particular Paul, around 10 p.m. that night near the tiny stop known as Drew Station, a masked man stepped out of the shadows as the coach was at a particularly slow pace. The man called for Paul to come to a stop, something that he, an experienced lawman from some time spent in California, knew that he was not going to do come hell or high water. Gunfire erupted at his refusal as more would-be robbers descended on the coach, and Philpot, the ailing driver who was sitting in the shotgun position where Paul usually would have been, fell off the wagon dead. A passenger named Peter Rorig, forced to sit on top of the coach due to cramped conditions, also was killed in the firefight. Paul returned fire, but it was too dark to tell if his shotgun had found any of the assailants. But he grabbed the reins, whipped the horses into a frenzy, and made a beeline straight for Benson. As soon as he got the coach safely into town, Paul wired Wells Fargo and Tombstone with the news. Since the attempted robbery and successful murders had occurred in unincorporated Cochise County, it fell to newly named Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Bean to investigate. However, since the coach had been carrying U.S. mail on board, that raised the crime to a federal one, meaning U.S. Deputy Marshal Virgil Earp was going to be involved. And he, of course, deputized Wyatt and Morgan to come along. Following the direction they hoped the attempted stage robbers had gone, the party came to a small ranch along the San Pedro River, where they found a man milking a cow while wearing guns strapped to his waist. Wyatt Earp historian Scott Dyke says that Wyatt managed to trick this man, Luther King, into confessing that he had been in cahoots for the robbery and into naming his companions, Billy Leonard, Jim Crane, and Harry Head. And wouldn't you just know it, they were all known cowboys. Bean and others took King into custody and put him in a cell in Tombstone before joining back up with the Earps, who were heading deep into cowboy country on the trail of the three named robbers. However, the trail eventually fell cold, and exhausted, the party had to ride back into town empty-handed. And the news that greeted them back in Tombstone wasn't that great either. Luther King had managed to break out of jail. Well, maybe break out isn't the best term. On the night of March 28th, so nearly two weeks after the robbery attempt and in about a week after King had been locked up, the confessed stage robber managed to simply walk out of his cell. Deputy Sheriff Harry Woods, consequently the man that Bean had appointed instead of Wyatt, stepped out to talk with someone and King somehow managed to open his cell door, which maybe was not locked, and managed to step out a back door and ride off on a waiting horse. This was either incompetence or collusion on the part of the sheriff's office, and I bet you can imagine which way John Clum and his Republican-backed Epitaph newspaper leaned on that question. George Parsons, the prolific chronicler we met at the start of this series, wrote in his personal journal, quote, King, the stage robber, escaped tonight early from H. Woods, 
who had been previously notified of an attempt at release to be made. Some of our officials should be hanged. They are a bad lot. End quote. Dyke goes so far as to say that the escape of King was intentional on Bean's part to sabotage everything connected to the Earps. Now, if that seems short-sighted and petty, then you get two points for paying attention. What may have been even more petty, however, is what Johnny Bean did next. First off, he didn't share any of the money that he billed Cochise County for the manhunt with the Earps, rationalizing that they were on the federal payroll, not the county dime. Then in July, still feeling more than a little antagonistic toward the Earps and probably smarting from losing Josephine and seeing her go after Wyatt, that part is all my conjecture, by the way, Bean decided to strike at Wyatt's soft underbelly. If the tough white herb had one weakness, it was his friendship with that darn drunken gambler, Doc Holliday. And that's where Bean struck. In early July 1881, Kate Elder, a.k.a. Big Nose Kate, made a trip to Tombstone to see Holliday. She was living in Globe running a boarding house and was still trying to persuade Holiday to join her. And apparently the latest attempt didn't go so well and erupted into a patented Kate and Doc fight. Sensing an opportunity, Bean and some cohorts managed to find an angry Kate in a saloon and bought her enough booze so that she would agree to a plan to get back at Doc. All she had to do was confess that Doc had been in on the whole stagecoach robbery thing. Once she did, the Tombstone Nugget newspaper ran the incendiary story and a warrant was sworn out against Holiday. Unfortunately, while this lie managed to get off to a running start, the truth wasn't that far behind. Holiday had been at a poker game at the time of the robbery, something that others could attest to. Plus, after Kate was arrested following yet another bender, her claims were looked into and then subsequently dismissed. She later recanted everything, and Doc forgave her before she left for Globe again. Even the pro-democratic, pro-Bean nugget was forced to admit, quote, thus ended what at the time was supposed to be an important case, such as the result of a warrant sworn out by an enraged and intoxicated woman, end quote. Bean's perfect revenge had fizzled out, but you can only imagine how Wyatt and his brothers felt about it. I will note here also that years later, a cowboy sympathizer would record that the robbery had actually been a plot by the Arabs. In this telling, it was Morgan who was supposed to be riding shotgun that night, and he would have just handed over the $26,000, but Paul got put on the line at the last minute. Now, this was patently false and disprovable any number of ways, but it's a rumor that didn't really die that easy. As proof, James H. McClintock, recording Arizona's history in the early 20th century, actually passes off as fact that the Earps may have been involved. But one of my favorite bits is actually from John Clum in his later years, who reported that these rumors really got under Doc Holliday's skin, chronicling that, quote, Doc announced that he would make a sieve out of the next low-down blankety-blank who repeated the gossip. End quote. Wyatt, meanwhile, was too busy with his own machinations to worry about any of these slandering tongues. 
He was not the sort of man to let something slip away, whether that be someone he was chasing or the $3,600 reward Wells Fargo was offering for the capture of the stagecoach robbers. In June 1881, so nearly a month before being schemed to blame Doc, Wyatt made a point of meeting with Ike Clanton, hardly the brains of his family, and another cowboy, Joe Hill, and he came prepared with a proposition. If Clanton and Hill could help set up the three stagecoach robbers, Wyatt would make sure that they wound up with all the reward money. You see, Wyatt didn't want the money. What he wanted more was the publicity. He was most likely considering running against Bean in the November 1882 election for sheriff, and so a headline proclaiming him the lawman that brought in the notorious robbers while Bean had literally let a man walk out of jail was too good to pass up. So the plot was to have Clanton and Hill get word to Leonard Crane and Head that another stagecoach, laden with money, was going to be making a run and would be ripe for the picking. Then, before they had a chance to knock it over, the Earps would swoop down on where they were staging, Wyatt would claim all the credit for himself, and then give money to his collaborators, and the Cowboys would be none the wiser that they had been sold out. Unfortunately, this plan went just about as well as Bean's plan to frame Doc Holliday. Word soon came back to Wyatt that Billy Leonard and Harry Head wouldn't be lured in by his bait, mainly because they were both already taking a dirt nap. Apparently, they'd been hired to run a pair of brothers off their ranch in New Mexico, and these brothers fought back and managed to kill both Leonard and Head, it was a Pyrrhic victory, however, as the Cowboys didn't take the killing of two of their own very kindly and then gunned the brothers down. Then in August came the final nail in the coffin for Wyatt's hopes of being named the man who brought the stage robbers to justice. Jim Crane, the last surviving member of the conspiracy, was out on the range with some companions doing what they did best, rustling cattle. However, while along the border of Arizona, New Mexico, and Mexico, his group was slaughtered nearly to a man. Officially, it was Mexican officials determined not to let any more gringos prey on their countrymen, though Dyke passes along that there were rumors that the Earps and Holiday may have lent a hand in the shooting. If that's true, then Wyatt pretty much shot himself in the foot when it came to wrapping up this stagecoach robbery business. But there was one more vital consequence of Crane's passing. One of his companions that bit the dust with him that night was Newman Clanton, known also as Old Man Clanton because apparently that nickname happened in real life and not just in Western movies. Clanton, as you might suspect, was none other than the patriarch of the Clanton clan, including his son, Ike. And Old Man Clanton appears to have really been the brains of the outfit, keeping the family's collective noses out of too much trouble and keeping his potentially loose cannons of sons in check. Both Dyke and author Jeff Gwynn paint Ike Clanton, who was suddenly the family's new patriarch, as something of a dim bulb. What's worse is that he also liked to drink. A lot. Which, to be fair, didn't distinguish him too much from his contemporaries. But in this case, a drunken Ike Clanton was not a desirable situation as he now was gripped with what could be termed paranoia. 
because he had made a deal with Wyatt to turn over three of his cowboy brethren. True, they had all died before his treachery could take place, but even he could see that if the other cowboys found out, he would also find himself pushing up daisies. And after going around town, Ike suddenly became possessed with the idea that Wyatt had let others in on their little conspiracy, which alarmed him to no end. With what faculties he possessed, Ike Clanton began to think that this world might be a much better place if there were a few less herbs in it. In the meantime, other tensions were on the rise. Following the violence of the attempted Benson stagecoach robbery, Tombstone passed an ordinance that banned carrying deadly weapons within city limits, unless someone possessed a permit. This ordinance applied to any deadly weapons, knives and guns alike, though it had more holes than a sieve. Permits were easy to come by, and even the notoriously combative and drunken Doc Holliday had one. So people arriving in town could check their weapons at their primary destination, be it a hotel, saloon, or business, and would check it out again as they were leaving town, no matter how long it actually took them to leave. Another thread to follow is the fact that Virgil Earp was made Tombstone's full-time chief of police over the summer of 1881. Now, the position had been created by the town council, though it was simply a rebranding from having a town marshal. However, it did come with some more parameters than the marshal gig. Specifically, the new chief was charged with preventing the breach of peace, arresting and jailing anyone found violating town laws and ordinances, or who were brawling, quarreling, using profane language, or were just plain intoxicated. Finally, they were to arrest anyone, quote, found committing acts injurious to the quiet and good order of the city, end quote. You know, basically what you would expect a police officer to do, but is pretty anathema to the way the West was. And Virgil was not the first person appointed to the job. However, his predecessor had not been aggressive enough for the town leaders, and in June 1881, he asked for a two-week leave of absence, which basically turned into a nice excuse to skip town. And though he seems to have pleased his bosses in town government, Virgil was apparently not on good terms with his brother's rival, Johnny Bean. During July 1881, Territorial Secretary John Gosper visited Tombstone, ostensibly to check on conditions there and reported up the latter, but really it was to gather support for his bid to replace the perennially absent John C. Fremont as governor, which we talked about back in episode 76. In his letter to his superiors, Gosper reported on a mutual animosity between Earp and Bean, and how both accused the other of not cooperating in law enforcement matters. Now, this may have been just a bit of exaggeration, as just the day before the famous shootout, Virgil was actually out with Johnny Bean tracking down some escapees from the county jail. Still, we do know that there was tension there. To make things worse... On September 8th, there was a robbery of the Tombstone to Bisbee stagecoach. After the robbers had relieved the stage of its cash box and the passengers of their money, netting about $600 and a gold pocket watch, one of the bandits turned to the driver and said that maybe he had some quote-unquote sugar on him. 
Wyatt and Morgan Earp were part of the posse to track these robbers down, where they found evidence that one of the robbers had a very narrow boot and was riding an unshod horse. The trail led to Bisbee, where a local cobbler said that he just fixed a narrow boot hill for someone named Frank Stilwell, and Wyatt must have been smiling the rest of the day. Frank Stilwell, who was very well known for calling money sugar, just like the robber had, had actually been employed as a deputy sheriff by none other than Johnny Bean. It was an off-and-on sort of thing, but still, this was a great chance to rack up a lot of political points against Bean ahead of the next election. Unfortunately, things were frustrated when the charges against Stilwell were dismissed because the evidence really was nothing more than circumstantial. But always remember, the Earps, much like the Montoyas, never took defeat easily, and Virgil actually arrested Stilwell on federal charges since the stage had been carrying U.S. mail. Though Stilwell got out on bail ahead of a hearing, the Cowboys were now alerted to the fact that Virgil was coming after one of their own. According to Wyatt, Frank McLowry and others threatened Morgan, making two Earp brothers he had had a heated conversation with. The second, of course, is what we covered last week, when Frank had confronted and threatened Virgil over the whole incident with the stolen army mules. Virgil would also claim that Frank would confront him again in September 1881, just a month before the shooting, and accuse him and others of raising a vigilance committee to come and hang all the cowboys. Now, this stemmed from talk about forming a Texas Ranger-like outfit to ostensibly fight Apaches, which every White Eyes was deathly afraid of, but which the cowboys just knew was going to be aimed at them. Virgil, of course, told Frank he was crazy and that no such thing was being plotted. Frank didn't believe him and, according to Virgil, said, quote, I will never surrender my arms to you. I had rather die of fighting than to be hanged. End quote. So, yeah, moving into the fall of 1881, no one was really happy with anyone else. And Wyatt was especially unhappy with Ike Clanton. Still convinced that Wyatt had blabbed about their deal and soon the likes of Curly Bill or Johnny Ringo would come for him, Clanton kept whining to Earp about the situation. That in turn led Wyatt to expect that Clanton's braying about the issue would be the thing that actually leaked the details of the deal to the whole Wyatt world. And lately Ike had convinced himself that Wyatt had spilled the beans to Doc Holliday, who was away from Tombstone gambling in Tucson. To try and diffuse things a bit, Morgan Earp rode to Tucson to fetch Holiday, and he found him living again with Big Nose Kate. Uh, apparently a little thing like perjury and baseless accusations to the law was not enough to stop their on-and-off-again relationship. Holiday came back into town on October 22nd and took a room at C.S. Fly's boarding house on Fremont Street. However, Ike was not in town at the time, so there was no chance of getting the two together just yet. So White had to wait for Doc to talk to Ike, and either cajole him or, more likely, intimidate him into shutting his darn yapper. On the morning of October 25th, 1881, Ike was having breakfast with his younger brother Billy and Tom and Frank McLowry at a ranch roughly a dozen miles outside of town, 
Billy and Frank would stay to tend to some cattle while Ike and Tom rode into town. The McLowrys actually had business in town and made plans for Frank and Billy to come the next day to have a little tombstone fun after finishing up their ranch chores. The McLowrys had business in town and made plans for Frank and Billy to come the next day to have a little bit of tombstone fun after finishing up their ranch chores. Unfortunately, Ike didn't have any business aside from hitting the bottle. So the pair, Tom and Ike, rode into Tombstone and checked their weapons at the Grand Hotel before setting out to hit the town. Ike and Tom drank and gambled the afternoon away. Tom seems to have put off conducting his business until the next day, before eventually separating to try to hit different establishments. Late that night, Ike drifted into the Alhambra, a place known as a lunchroom to grab a bite to eat. Lunchrooms like these were common in Tombstone, and I think they would be roughly what we would term cafes, you know, serving sandwiches and soups and other things that gamblers could grab between a hand of cards. Despite the late hour, the lunchroom was packed. Included in the crowd was Wyatt, though he and Ike didn't exchange any words. But when Doc Holliday walked in the door, things really hit the fan. Now, we're not entirely sure of what exactly happened as different versions of events were given at the future legal hearings over the gunfight, but we do know that Ike and Doc got into it, loudly and angrily. Ike claimed that Doc, soon followed by Morgan Earp, goaded him on, taunting him to get a gun and actually, you know, settle things like a man. Wyatt claimed that Morgan pulled Doc away from Ike before something unfortunate happened, but a belligerent Ike followed them, throwing out all sorts of threats. It didn't help that both men had probably been drinking for hours ahead of this confrontation. Now, whichever one you want to believe, if any, it was an ugly confrontation and got everyone's hackles raised. Doc, as we've discussed before, was notoriously short-tempered and was always ready for a fight, despite the fact that he was also pretty bad in a fight. As for Ike, well, everyone figured that Ike would just sleep it off and everything would be fine and dandy. It turns out that everyone figured wrong. Dyke says that Morgan helped Doc back to his boarding house where the dentist could calm down a little bit. Wyatt spent the evening collecting his share from the pharaoh tables before he eventually found his way home to Maddie, though he might have wished that it was to Josephine instead. Ike, however didn't have a convenient bed nearby to collapse into. So he did what anyone in his situation would do. He kept bar hopping. Instead of going to the Grand Hotel, where he had checked his weapons in the morning, Ike instead came upon the Oriental Saloon. And here he found Tom McLowry again, who was with none other than Virgil Earp and Johnny Bean. What happened next was a strange case where men who would literally be firing at each other in less than 24 hours sat down and played cards. Gwyn makes an argument that Virgil was more of a diplomat than his brothers and perhaps this was his way of trying to defuse some tense situations. Maybe he could smooth Ike's ruffled feathers after the loud drunken altercation he had just had with Doc Holliday. Maybe he could repair some fences with McLowry and his brother and keep off violence with the Cowboys for another day. And maybe he could make some peace with Johnny Bean since Wyatt certainly wasn't going to try. 
On the other hand, Gwyn also says that Johnny was a terrible card player with lots of money, so maybe Virgil was just getting some low-key revenge. Now, Tombstone really seems to have been a city that never sleeps, since most of these events I just narrated happened after midnight. And this card game actually went on until 6 o'clock in the morning. That's right, it literally didn't break up until the first hints of dawn were coming on. I don't think it needs saying, but I'll do it anyway. There is a zero chance that there wasn't a good deal of drinking happening all throughout this game. And speaking of which, Dyke says of this game, quote, There is no record of the winners or losers, but the gambling session did not improve Ike's mood. End quote. When Virgil stood to leave the table, a pistol tucked in his waistband, Ike followed him out of the saloon. Working Virgil's last bit of patience, Ike asked him to carry a message to Holiday. That blankety-blank so-and-so had better be prepared for a fight. But Virgil wasn't hearing it. He told Ike what any frontier lawman would tell an angry drunk. Go sleep it off somewhere. At this, Ike declared that Holiday and now the Herbs had better be prepared for a fight because there was one coming. Shrugging this thread off, Virgil went off to find a bed, making sure to tell Ike not to cause any trouble that would necessitate him getting out of it early. And he probably thought that was that. Like I said, Ike Clanton wasn't known as that bright of a guy, and no one appeared to take his threats very seriously. It wouldn't be for a few more hours before everyone realized that maybe Ike would actually carry through. And I'm going to leave things here for this week, as dawn has broken on October 26, 1881. Believe it or not, most of the main players were just now getting to bed and would remain there until the afternoon, while a couple more were just now heading toward town, and the last remaining one was wandering around town angry, tired, and drunk. Join me next week as we finally come to the thing that this whole series has been leading up to, a violent confrontation at a spot somewhere near a small livery called the OK Corral. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.